To the Afghan people, we make this commitment. We will not walk away as the outside world has done so many times before. Those were the words of Prime Minister Tony Blair in 2001 when he sent British troops into Afghanistan. Today, after the withdrawal of NATO troops against the wishes of the US-backed government there, the Taliban looks set to regain the country. I'll be speaking to two expert guests on the current situation. I'm also joined tonight by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm okay. It's a bit of a sad news day, really. So it's hard to do the little jokey intro that we would normally do. Yeah, we've got two incredibly serious stories tonight. The I mean, the horrific fall of, of Afghanistan, of various cities to the Taliban, and also um, the really grim, horrific mass shooting which took place in Plymouth. We'll be speaking about the incel responsible for this. It does seem like there were some really dark ideological motivations behind what has happened. Um, we will also talk about the latest development in the battle over Britney Spears' conservatorship. After the withdrawal of US troops, the Afghan government's rule is crumbling faster than almost anyone foresaw. The Taliban, who already controlled much of the nation's countryside, now control 18 of its 34 provincial capitals. The fall of these cities has all taken place within the space of a week, and the biggest losses were in the past 48 hours. That includes Kandahar, the country's second largest city, and Herat, the third largest city in Afghanistan. They both fell on Thursday, so within the space of 24 hours. One resident of Kandahar is Pishtana Durrani. She runs a charity which focuses on getting girls into education, and she spoke to Channel 4 News as the Taliban took control of her city. This means I'm going to lose my everything that my father and I and my whole family has worked for, every girl has worked for, every person who has worked for in the last 20 years. This means losing your houses, losing your dreams, your goals, your ambitions, your identity as Afghan, everything. Can you tell me what, how do you think that is going to happen? The, the Taliban don't stand for anything other than violence, other than their white flag, other than the Islamic Emirat. They don't stand for the word Afghanistan or Afghans or women or justice or fairness or education. I mean, like we sacrifice thousands of men just for our girls to get to school. And now I don't even know where my students are. I don't even know where the students are right now. I mean, like, yeah, uh, I feel weak right now. I, I feel like crying right now because I don't have any other option. I don't know where my students are. I don't know where half of my staff is right now. What are you going to do? Uh, in all honesty, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I might be evacuated. I might not be evacuated. I might be murdered by tomorrow. I might not be. I might not be able to go out anymore. I might not be able to mobilize anymore. I might not be able to work and educate myself. I don't know. I'm gonna be honest. All I can think of is one thing that my family did so much to build. The Kandahar that I knew, the uh, life that I lived as a refugee, and all sacrifices that we made to be here, it's, it's for nothing. Everything for nothing. Did you consider leaving, or did this all happen too quickly? 
I didn't. I didn't consider leaving. I thought even if stuff happened, this is not going to happen. Kandar cannot fall. Kandar can never fall. Uh, cities won't fall. Herat won't fall. Farah won't fall. This is not happening. This is the 21st century. We have everything. We have a good army. We have a uh, new defense system. Everything is in place. We are educated more. We are liberated more. We have every kind of right. But I didn't know our leaders are so corrupt. They are so power hungry. They are so greedy that they will sell us out. heartbreaking interview to watch she was speaking literally in the in the same moment um that the Taliban were taking over the the city that she lived in um you heard their reference to corrupt leaders selling out their citizens that's likely in part a reference to those regional governors who are making deals with the Taliban instead of putting up a fight that includes the governor of Ghazni It's a city a hundred miles from Kabul. Um, the governor there is accused of striking a deal with the Taliban, handing them the city in exchange for safe passage to the capital. He was later arrested by the security forces of the Afghan government. I'm joined now by Gulwali Pasale, an Afghan political refugee now residing in the UK, and author of *The Lightless Sky: My Journey to Safety as a Child Refugee*. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. You currently have family in Afghanistan. Could you tell us how you are viewing the current situation that we're witnessing—the the, the dramatic fall of Afghan cities to the Taliban? Michael, it's heartbreaking to see because I grew up in a war zone, and I didn't expect to to see this happening again. Perhaps it's worse than what it was when I was growing up as a child, seeing seeing the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. So I, you know, not only do I have family there, but I worry and I fear for my fellow Afghans in the country. It's a uh, it's burning and it's it's bleeding and seeing it from afar it's quite quite hard because i've been struggling to sleep and i had many sleepless nights it's just so much at stake um and lives have been lost uh, the afghan people are the one who are suffering uh, there's been uh, half a million almost half a million displaced afghans in the last week or so a lot of people moved from district to cities and those cities has now fallen there's just so much violence and uh, yeah it's just beyond me that this has this is happening and this was allowed to happen this was preventable uh this should not have happened what's your analysis of, of why the afghan government has been so quick to crumble in large parts of the country i think every everyone knew and admitted there was going to be a, a risk of taliban takeover but there were many people who thought that the government would be able to protect these large cities for for at least a decent period of time they've all crumbled in a space of, of 48 hours what 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 allowed that to happen indeed i mean during the when the soviet union left the afghan government were able to hold on for about 3 years and this was something i did not expected many afghans who supposed the republic did not expect it i think there was a lot of factors the us leaving abruptly without consideration because the afghan army the national security forces rely so much on the us air power and expertise and experiences and advice so i feel like there was uh, you know issues around uh, corruption of course there was issues the wrong people were in charge of our forces and most cases and they just they left provinces and cities and districts without a fight Uh, and also of course uh, factors around soldiers not getting food soldiers not getting their salaries and there was a you know the morale was low and mainly because of leadership but because also the the taliban propaganda was quite strong uh, and uh, in pushing you know and 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 letting taking over cities and getting the government to either surrender or to just leave we saw so many especially in nimroz and a lot of uh, in northern cities um, the police uh, and the army just leaving um and also i think there is this was technically uh, tactically done to not uh, inflict suffering and more destruction on cities so that's in a way kind of admirable but at the same time it's very concerning so there was many yeah. factors not just one the afghan government corruption the us 
the way the U.S. has made deals with the Taliban and have given them sadly legitimacy, and there was just momentum was on the side of the Taliban, and the Afghan government clearly had no plan. I think that's an important point. These deals between the governors and the Taliban could be seen in a more sympathetic light, which is that they think they're going to lose anyway, so they might as well spare the the, the fighting. I, I want to ask you about the Taliban in particular, because we often talk about this in terms of the weakness of the Afghan government. What about the strength of the Taliban? For them to be able to take over this much space in such a short space of time, presumably they do have a significant deal of legitimacy and support among some sections of the Afghan population. What's, what's your analysis of that? I mean, things that Afghanistan is a very complex society, but the Taliban would not, would not have been able to do what they have done in the last month or so without, uh, the, of course, the U.S. legitimacy, but without the support of Pakistan and Iran and other regional countries. But the point about, you know, not, uh, not fighting in cities, for example, in Lashkargah and Helmand, the Afghan National Security Forces put up a fight for over a month. Literally, the whole city got burned and it was fallen anyway. So in a, in a sense, that was understanding, understandable and parts of some of Afghan officials and leaders and giving up cities without a fight because they knew that they it might fall anyway because they were not able to get support from the central government. They were not able to get air support because most of our pilots being, pilots being dead or the, you know, the Americans were actually not providing um, air support. So yes, and I think the Taliban doesn't, nobody really elected them, but of course they have support because of the, 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 the government is corrupt. People are not happy with government in most parts, but whatever it was, the government is a lot better than what, what is to come. And a lot of Afghans supports the government because that's the least bad option. I'm going to come back to you in a moment, Gowali. I'm going to bring in Professor Anatole Levin. Anatole is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute who worked as a journalist for the Times in Afghanistan in the late 1980s. He's visited the country on several occasions since 2001. Can I get your analysis, Anatole, of, of this rapid collapse of the Afghan government? As I say, lots of people expected them to struggle once the, the US withdrew, but I I think you know most people seem to be surprised that this is happening in the space of 48 hours. What's your analysis of that? Uh, as previously, actually, in Afghanistan in the 80s and, and the 90s, there have been continual conversations going on, uh, sometimes along, you know, because of common tribal links uh, between government forces, local government forces and the Taliban. This is off also very often involved, you know, sharing out the proceeds of the heroin trade. And uh, these links between the two sides have meant that government forces have been able to surrender to the Taliban uh, without fearing that they would be massacred. Um, and this is also an Afghan tradition, tradition in other places, um, which the Taliban uh, have actually adhered to very, uh, in, in general very closely, um, which is that uh, if uh, uh, an enemy garrison surrenders in good time, uh, they will be allowed to go home with their personal weapons, by the way. Uh, some commanders will be told that they must leave or die, but the rank and file will be spared. Um, and that is clearly what's happening today. Now, of course, on the other hand, uh, if you try to fight it out to the end, um, then no quarter, as the old um, expression went. So you see, I mean, Afghan, we have been presented by the Western media and the Afghan government as well, you know, with this picture of, you know, bitter ideological divisions in Afghanistan, clear-cut allegiances. Uh, very often on the, the ground, it hasn't been nearly that clear. Uh, there's also been a very common arrangement, by the way, uh, where a family has sent one son to the government forces and one son to the Taliban, so as to be covered whichever side wins. Uh, and, of course, at a given point when it looks as if one side is losing, and now it's clearly the government, uh, the order will go out from the family 
or the son will make his own decision simply to go home in peace. And that is why you can, you, you have had this pattern three times by now, where you have had some very, very ferocious battles, some great atrocities, and then suddenly the whole thing goes down very quickly and actually astonishingly peacefully. That's interesting idea. You think, you think it could happen relatively peacefully. We'll come back to that issue a little bit later on. I want to focus now on the international context, which has been very much um, at the forefront of all, all coverage of this, um, in this country at least, at the moment. The context here really is the US had set 11th of September this year as a deadline for full withdrawal from Afghanistan. This followed a deal between the Taliban and Donald Trump in 2019, in which the Americans agreed to withdraw from Afghanistan and lift sanctions against the Taliban while also pressuring the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban prisoners. In exchange, the Taliban agreed not to harbour al-Qaeda in areas they controlled. This is you know, widely seen by many as selling out the Afghan government. The dominant position represented on Britain's airwaves, at least today, has been that this deal and the US withdrawal and the NATO withdrawal was a mistake. That was the position of Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, who spoke today. It's also the position of prominent Conservatives who are outside the government. Tom Tugendhat is a backbencher and chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. This is how he responded to Biden's comments that the US couldn't prop up the government in Afghanistan forever. That's rubbish. That's absolute rubbish. The Americans have spent 20 or so billion dollars, but that money's not coming back. There's no way they're going to get that money back. There's no way they're going to get the 2,000 lives that have, you know, the, the Afghan, oh, sorry, American troops have been killed. They're not coming back. What we're now talking about is what do you do going forward? And actually 2,500 US troops was managing to keep the lid on insurgency and enabling 400,000 Afghan troops to continue. Now the United States better start planning for refugee emergencies in places like Pakistan and Iran, because that's what we're gonna see next. So the idea that the US couldn't endure is complete rubbish. That's not a military choice, that's a political one. What he's saying is he didn't want to endure. That's not the same as saying he couldn't. That was Tom Tugendhat. Rory Stewart is a former Tory MP. He was governor of an Iraqi province post-invasion, and then he moved to Afghanistan. He lived there for a while. He spoke in similar terms. Well, it's it's terrifying. I mean, the, the Taliban in the matter of about a week have taken much of the country. And this is a horrifying group associated with terrorists. They've been backing suicide bombing in the areas that they control. Women are not going to school. And it's a, a total betrayal by the United States and by the United Kingdom. What is NATO if it's not able to work its way through these problems? It ought to have been possible if the US were withdrawing because there were very, very few troops there, 2,500 troops and some air support for the other nations to take up that slack and to ask President Biden to provide some support while he took his troops out. It's totally shameful for NATO and it's pretty shameful to blame it all on the United States because this was a massive coalition operation and people are forgetting the Turks, for example, have very courageously remained in Afghanistan while everyone else has left. Anatole, I want to bring you in to respond to both of those comments from Stuart and Tugendhat, and indeed our, our Defence Secretary. What, what do you make of, of people who say what we're witnessing now, that's because the US withdrew in an irresponsible way. They withdrew before um, the, the Afghan government had built up significant strength to, to fend off um, an, an encroachment from the Taliban. Look, 
if the Afghan government couldn't build up sufficient strength in 20 years uh, with US military aid that gave them a budget at least 10 times the size of the Taliban, with heavy artillery, with tanks, with air cover, this was never going to happen. Uh, clearly, there is something just fundamentally rotten about the state that we helped to create. Secondly, now I'm not saying this for Rory Stewart, I'm a very brave man who was in Iraq and also traveled and wrote an excellent book about Afghanistan. But in general, my reply to this is, look, mate, you, you, you want to say that we should fight to defend this Afghan state, then you pick up a rifle yourself. I'm not stopping you. You know, go off to Kandahar or, or Herat. Previous Afghan state, um, you know, defended by the Soviet Union, outlasted the Soviet um, military presence by three years. Ours has collapsed, you know, on the spot. That really should tell you something. As for the idea that Britain and NATO could somehow replace the United States in Afghanistan, you know, or, or fight without the United States or to cover the United States, I mean, this, this is just absolute self-deception. Um, we, we must have learned from, you know, previous experience going back to Bosnia you know, in the 1990s that NATO is not that kind of organization. And certainly, I mean, the British army has fought very gallantly, unsuccessfully, but gallantly uh, in, um, in Afghanistan. Uh, that has most certainly not been true of most of our NATO allies. Um, and believing that they ever will is, I'm sorry, but it's foolish. I mean, there are many people who are saying that for the US to withdraw in this way, after you know spending all of this money propping up the Afghan government and, and saying they wouldn't leave in this fashion, they've left against the wishes of the Afghan government and allowed it to be allowed. It looks like the country is going to fall to the Taliban. Is Biden not concerned about that? Are, are the US and NATO not concerned about the fact that they promised to build a new nation and have now just left it to to collapse? Are they are, are they consigned or resigned to seeing that happening? I, I'm afraid that they are um, because we failed to build a new nation. The point is that in the end, I mean, that also reflects the fact that people have to build their own nations, you know, on their own historical and cultural foundations. Uh, and um, Afghanistan just has not provided the base uh, for the kind of state that we wanted to create. I mean, leaving aside the obvious issues of, of massive corruption, heroin dealing and so on. So I think the Biden administration, um, I mean, it doesn't like this. But yes, it's resigned itself to the fall of the Afghan state. And its strategy uh, is now moving towards that, frankly, uh, of the Russians, the Chinese, the uh, Iranians, and even the Pakistanis, um, that we have to deal with the Taliban, uh, while, of course, insisting that they um, give up and do not resume things that really threaten us, which means in the first instance, of course, support for international terrorism, uh, and perhaps in the longer term also um, uh, that they should um, really crack down on the heroin trade. Yes, I mean, people have not been willing to say that quite openly yet, because obviously the Afghan government is still there just about in Kabul. Uh, but the, 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 the obvious movement uh, is towards, um, in future, trying to manage the, the town the withdrawal of NATO troops. There are sort of two narratives here. One is that, you know, it, it was doomed to failure. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. The other analysis is they have abandoned Afghans when there are many people in the country who want the Afghan government to survive, even if they don't like it very much. And, and then they feel like this has been an abdication of responsibility on the part of NATO. What's what, what's your position on that? So, yes, I mean, as an, as an Afghan, I don't want foreign forces in Afghanistan. Uh, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. But when they did, they should not have left the way they have. 
leaving us to the wolves and giving so much legitimacy to the Taliban. And basically, uh, the Afghan government and the army is collapsing because of, you know, uh, lack of American support. And they created the Afghan security forces in a way to be dependent on the U.S. and NATO forces. And, you know, it's just very unfortunate. And I worry and my concern is mainly for the, you know, ordinary Afghans who will go through a, a, a hell again and again. And just just, just not fair. And I, I hope we respond to this humanitarian crisis in a humane and responsible manner. Anatole, I'm going to go back to you. There are a number of options, which is either that the Taliban take full control of Afghanistan, or there is some sort of surprise resurgence of the Afghan government who've been sort of hiding forces which are which are invisible to the rest of us. I don't really mean physical ones here, but the energy to 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 push back against this onslaught, or some kind of power sharing agreement between the two. Which of those do you think is is most likely, and which would be, I suppose, least bad is one way of putting it. I can see no possibility of a successful government counter it now. They have lost cities across the country. The absolute key thing is that they, they have lost cities, key cities in non-Pashtun areas, the cities which it was thought would be the last to fall um, to the Taliban, which is still at heart a, a Pashtun force, but has clearly now recruited many non-Pashtuns as well. So the survival of the government as such is not an issue. It's just a question of how long they, you know, get onto helicopters and get out. Uh, what is very much um, open is uh, how many government commanders go over to the Taliban with their men and are allowed to do so. Uh, Ismail Khan uh, in Herat, a famous old Mujahideen commander who then became governor and has supported the, the government since 2001. Now, he did not flee uh, from Herat as the Taliban came in. He is now under house arrest. The Taliban have claimed that Ismail Khan has joined them. I mean, that obviously shows that they want him to join them. Whether he has, of course, who knows? We we, we can't say. But the point is that, you know, both um, when the communist government fell in 92 uh, and as the Taliban rose in the later 90s, uh, many commanders on the other side came over to the winning side with their forces. Now, a, a, a key question there is, is also Taliban respect for ethnic and ethno-religious minority rights. Uh, and the biggest single issue there is the Hazara Shia, uh, who are backed by Iran, and Iran is, is very committed to them. Uh, if the Taliban do not respect their religious rights as Shia, then they're going to have very serious problems with Iran. Um, and you will have the, the basis for future atrocities and repressions. But I think the... Um, a key thing to watch uh, is just how many people the, the Taliban can recruit from the from the government side. That's the first point. Soldiers from the government side, commanders from the government side. The second question will be, but that's for the rather further future, uh, whether the Taliban will recognize their need for Western educated technocrats, uh, whether they understand that they need people like that to help run an Afghan state. Uh, and the evidence from the past on that is mixed. Um, of course, in certain respects, well, in key respects, the Taliban were extremely repressive, conservative. Occasionally, however, for example, in their support for the campaign to eradicate polio, uh, they showed that they did have a certain sense of what makes a modern state and modern state responsibility. We will have to see whether they will uh, 
try to recruit those people. And of course, in the process, whether they will give them uh, sufficient cultural freedom, because if they don't, then of course, all their technocrats will leave. One way that the West can really go on influencing the Taliban, uh, and I hope against hope that we try to work together with the Chinese and others on this, uh, is of course through continued aid, making con continued Western aid conditional on the Taliban observing certain rules and limits. Uh, that's why I am uh, you know, absolutely against um, the German statement, for example, that they were going to cut aid uh, if the Taliban won. The Taliban are going to win. The question is how we can use aid to influence their subsequent behaviour. Gulwali, I want to give uh, the final word to you, and particularly, I suppose, drawing on your personal experiences. Whatever happens, it does seem like there is going to be, you know, to some degree, a refugee crisis here. You've clearly you know, come from Afghanistan as a, as a refugee, as a child. How does that experience inform what you think is going to happen next? And also, I suppose, do you have a message for, for Western governments who at this point, many of them are actually still saying, oh, actually, Afghanistan is a safe place to, to deport people back to? I mean, sitting here listening to Antol, it's like a, a academic discussion. I mean, we are talking about human beings. We're talking about about 35 billion Afghans who will suffer as a result of our policies or lack of it. And the Taliban's, uh, I don't think they are people who we, um, you know, we could uh, put a lot of, uh, you know, trust or, or give legitimacy to. But anyhow, I think, you know, I was hoping and I had aspiration to be able to see my family and to go back. I've been here, came here as a child, been here for the last 14 years, and we will see a huge displacement. I mean, there's already about 5 million Afghan internally displaced and there has been rising. And so most Afghans will, will leave because of, you know, they, they're pro the government or pro republic. Or the Taliban are saying that they will not uh, go against these people. But actually, in practice, we saw a lot of videos and evidence where they've been executing um, commandos, even forces who surrendered to them. And they've been going after Afghans who are anti-Taliban. Uh, and so my message to the world is please don't abandon Afghanistan. Support us. I mean, the immediate support we need is a humanitarian response. We need to help people who are displaced, who need basic necessity. And we need to look for the longer term goal should be we need to find a political solution, a diplomatic solution. There needs to be pressure on Pakistan and Pakistan needs to stop supporting its proxies in Afghanistan. The Taliban will not have been able to do what they have without the support of Pakistan and Iran and other regional actors. And I think America and the UK is making a huge mistake by leaving Afghanistan in this mess. And they, they have a moral uh, responsibility towards Afghans and uh, Afghans into the, to the Afghan state. Kowali Pasale, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And Anatol Lievin, we really, really um, appreciate you speaking to us tonight. If you do want to hear more from our guests or read more from our guests, you can check out Kowali Pasale's book, The Lightless Sky, which is currently available in paperback, mm -hmm. as is Anatol Lievin's most recent work, Climate Change and the Nation State. We do recommend you check both of those out. We are going to go straight on to our next story. Five people have been killed in Britain's worst mass shooting since 2010. The horrific incident took place on Thursday night in Plymouth, and police have named the shooter as Jake Davison, aged 22. Davison first killed his 51-year-old mother, Maxine Chapman, inside a house. He then went out onto the street, where he shot and killed a three-year-old girl, Sophie Martin, as well as her 43-year-old father, Lee Martin. Also in the street, he shot a 53-year-old woman and a 33-year-old man, both of whom remain in hospital. He then entered a park where he shot and killed 59-year-old Stephen Washington. 66-year-old Kate Shepard was also shot and later died in hospital. Davison then killed himself. 
More information about the killer has been emerging. According to police, he was a licensed holder of firearms. He also um, has described himself on his YouTube channel as an incel, which stands for involuntarily celibate. His YouTube channel has been taken down, but these are some quotes from the videos which he had uploaded there. Davison had said, why do you think sexual assaults and all these things keep rising? The reality is that women don't need men no more, and they certainly don't want and don't need average men and below average. You have to go abroad to find a woman. You can see there is his, his attitudes towards women, really horrible stuff. He also repeatedly described himself as black-pilled. The black pill is named as an alternative to the blue pill and the red pill in the matrix. That's the reality or the the alternative to reality. The black pill is a fatalistic outlook centered on the belief that success with the opposite sex is determined by genetics at birth. In an online comment beneath one of his videos, Davison wrote, the black pill makes you obsessed with your looks. I never used to be this way. The longer you go without any kind of interaction with women and sex relationships, et cetera, et cetera, the more you become concerned about looks, but black pill turbocharges it. In his final YouTube video uploaded on July the 28th, Davison had ranted about how his life had hit a dead end as he struggles to or struggled to attract women or lose weight. He closed the video by comparing, comparing himself to the Terminator, saying, the whole premise of the Terminator movies is that you know everything is rigged against you. There's no hope for humanity. You know we're on the brink of extinction. These machines are unstoppable, killing machines that can't be beaten, can't be outsmarted, but yet humanity still tries to fight to the end. I know it's a movie, but you know, I like to think sometimes I'm a Terminator or something, and despite reaching almost total system failure, he keeps trying to accomplish his mission. Ash, this is all terrifying, horrible stuff. This is a 22-year-old radicalized by violent misogynistic ideas who goes on to kill five people, including a very young child. What, what possible response is there to this? I think the first thing we've got to do is try and understand and in an unflinching way, look at the culture and the subcultures and the material factors which produced this man and his way of thinking, which ended in this dreadful act of violence. And I think there's lots of things going on here. I think one of the really useful phrases uh, which I've learned to describe this culture around incels is internet nihilism. So it's a way of becoming addicted, not just to misery, but to cruel and even violent behaviors and finding some kind of agency within it. So it's not about asserting your agency by trying to go, maybe I could be happier, or maybe I can give people a better and more nourishing experience of my company. It's really about embracing the most nihilistic and brutal idea of human nature and behavior that there is. So even that thing about women aren't interested in average or below average men, speaking as a woman, that is just not how you categorize men at all. You just don't rank them like that. There isn't some kind of Excel spreadsheet that we're fitting men that we meet into. There are men that you're attracted to that might be on the basis of looks that might be on the basis of how they live. It might be on the basis of their personality, or it might just be on the basis of on some level, they remind you of your absentee father, right? There's lots of things going on there. And it's not as if we walk around kind of algorithmically sorting men. So in a way you can see the internalization of a kind of 
a hyper neoliberalized logic and the way in which by adopting that logic, you not only think of women as objects and as status objects, but also you think that that's how they're all thinking as well. So it's incredibly nihilistic. And you've also got a culture around using some of the most dehumanizing language possible for women, calling them foids, female humanoids, um, the way of thinking about women, not in terms of their personalities or the kinds of experiences you might be able to have with them or ways in which relationships can be uh, nourishing and kind of expand your horizons and your experience of the world. It's a way of thinking about women and access to sex as something which gives you meaning and purpose as a man. There have been other things which have emerged about this murderer, uh, the fact that he broke his ankle and couldn't get back into work, which I think really does chime with the kind of people who can sometimes be very vulnerable to incel culture and internet nihilism more generally, um, which is depression, a sense of futility coupled with a sense of entitlement, nurtured grievance and fantasies of what it means to assert your masculine agency over the world, which is very much framed within violent terms. Um, so I think that there's a lot to understand here. There's also, of course, the role and the expectations of the nuclear family in terms of managing and containing male violence, male rage and male anger and what happens when uh, the nuclear family is unable to do so. Um, so yeah, a lot to think about, a lot to understand. And I would be very wary of anyone who's presenting a simple answer and saying, here's this one thing that legislators could do or tech companies could do to deal with the problem. It's complex because it is so deeply rooted within our culture and so diffusely expressed through digital spaces. Despite this appearing to be an ideologically motivated mass, well, I mean, it was an ideologically motivated mass killing, right? The police insisted it wasn't terror related. This description of the mass killing by the Devon and Cornwall Police Chief Constable, I thought was particularly bizarre. Um, so he said, we believe we have an incident that is domestically related that has spilled into the street and seen several, several people in Plymouth losing their lives in extraordinarily tragic circumstances. Now, Ash, I want to bring you in, but there's so many weird parts to that statement. So one, it's a domestically related incident, which seems to sort of kind of underplay what's going on. And then it spills into the street as if there's sort of some natural bleed from that first murder to the other murders. And then it's described sort of extraordinarily tragic circumstances. Like it's, it's all in this bizarre passive voice that <sighs> even if the full extent of this guy's ideological motivations weren't known, I just find that a really odd description. Uh I mean, of, look, of what happened. We should be really critical of how things get labeled terrorism and also what that label does in terms of our expectations of a state response. So let's keep our critical hats on when we're thinking about terrorism. But when the police in this instance are saying this is not terror related, what they mean is he's white and we don't think he's a neo-Nazi. That's all they're saying when they say that it's not terror related. Now, of course, there's all kinds of ways in which acts of violence can have ideological underpinnings to them. So if you wanted to take another kind of misogynist act of violence, the honor killing, of course, that's deeply ideological. It's deeply tied up with cultural norms about expectations of women and what women's sexual behavior means to the reputations of their male family members around them. 
Okay, right. We would say that that's deeply ideological. And even here, even though that the targets of the killing do not necessarily appear to have been politically motivated as such, it does seem that this man's very deep and troubling radicalization in online spaces is something which facilitated this act of violence. Now, I think what that shows us is that sometimes our categorization of what is and what isn't terrorism starts to break down when you look at the individual circumstances around each violent perpetrator. And I imagine that if we applied the same amount of scrutiny to some of the people labeled Islamic or jihadist terrorists, we might find similar dynamics around alienation, loss of purpose, thwarted sense of entitlement, masculine fantasies of violence, so on and so forth. And I think that points towards some of the weaknesses around the category of terrorism. But what this police officer meant is he was white. Now, let's move on to the whole domestic incident which spilled out. One of the things about domestic violence is that it somehow becomes its own special category, separate from murder and GBH and all the things that we imagine as street crime, the things which as a society tend to drive our moral panics around violence and violent crime because it's within the home. And it has its own kind of halo of special uh you know, circumstantial language of, oh, it's a crime of passion, um, or it was motivated by jealousy, or, oh, he was scared of losing the kids. All these ways, which, in I think quite a subtle way, serve to either diminish or in some cases even justify acts of violence which are carried out by a man in and around the home. So in a very subtle way, I think we are starting to see that kind of diminishing and justification, even though this was such a brutal murder of so many people and was also a mass shooting, which in this country, thankfully, is something which is relatively rare. So I think that this is an example of the police and their understanding of violence being wholly inadequate, either to deal with the realities of misogyny, and misogyny as an, as an ideology which can radicalize people, but also the nature of online radicalization and what you would call stochastic violence, random violence. It's not necessarily organized. It's not necessarily being carried out because someone's given an order from on high, but it takes place because somebody is in an environment along with lots of other people, which makes an act of violence more likely, even if it's random as to who it is that ultimately does it. You've said there that mass shootings are thankfully very rare in this country. That's largely, I think, because we have gun control. We, we don't have a, a huge number of, of people having guns. Now, one bit of this story that, I mean, definitely we, we, we will need to find out more about is how this guy got a gun license. I don't think many people in this country have a firearms license, but this guy did. And we've just had an update since we've been on the show this is from The Guardian, that apparently Davison had had his license withdrawn, had had his license revoked, but then had been given it back because he'd attended an anger management course. So something appears to have gone incredibly wrong here. I'm not quite sure why he would have had a, a gun license to begin with. As I say, I'm sure this is something we will, we will learn about in, in the coming days. But for him to have had a gun license handed back to him after doing an anger management course and then going on to, to kill five people, other people in hospital, by the way, there are clearly going to be lots of questions to answer for, for the authorities in this instance. I am thankful 
every day that I wake up in a country with very tight regulation of firearms. There's something which I know other people in the radical left don't agree with. They think people should be armed. It means that, I don't know, it evens the odds between the people and the state. But I'm just glad that if God forbid I wake up tomorrow in an abusive relationship, the likelihood is, is that my partner doesn't have a gun on them, right? I am glad that we do not live in a society which is awash with guns. So I think that you're right. We have to wait for the facts to emerge on this one because I'm not sure how or why an anger management course is seen as adequate to deal with uh, somebody who is potentially violent, potentially has impulse control problems, and also has access to a gun. Right? That just seems to me to be something that shouldn't happen. All right, we're in a society where guns are not normalized; they are very tightly regulated. So I would always hope that we erred on the side of caution and just said to somebody you really shouldn't be having one. And then the other thing is that if they are someone who has uh, been identified as having a problem with violence, a problem with anger, to the extent that they had to take an anger management course in order to have a firearms license, that there would be a bit more of an investigation. It's been less than 24 hours and it has been remarkably easy to find this guy's Reddit, to find his YouTube in which that there are uh, fantasies around violence or at least a preoccupation with violence and a very problematic uh, set of ideas and viewpoints around women and sexuality. Um, that is something which was so easy to dig up. It wasn't under a fake name or an anonymous name or anything like that. Um, so you'd think that there would be a little bit more background checking, particularly if someone has been identified as a risk and they've got a firearms license. But Let's wait for the facts to emerge. I don't know if something has gone wrong, uh, if he slipped through the net somehow, but this is very, very troubling. I think that incel culture has been able to establish a foothold in online spaces for lots of reasons and not just one reason. I think one reason is the epidemic of loneliness. And the fact that I think that we do live in an increasingly atomized society. And I think it's quite easy for people to get pulled further and further away from their real life connections, which can hold them accountable and kind of keep them steady and, you know, give them the kind of care they need and get sucked into an internet culture, which is telling you, uh, that these people don't understand you, they never will, they don't understand the reality of things and they're in some way the enemy. So I think that the way in which loneliness combines with uh, online radicalization is something that's really potent. And I think that one of the other things that it seems that we don't have a language to talk about this in a nuanced way, but I think that the overlap between online radicalization, loneliness and I have no idea if this was a factor in this case. I'm just pointing it out as something which I think can deepen and amplify and render more acute the problem of misogyny is online pornography. Now, I'm not an anti-porn person. I don't think that porn is bad. I don't think that uh, it's inherently exploitative. I think that there are people who make it in a less exploitative way and that's very good. But I think that if you're a young man and you don't have any fulfilling relationships with women and you feel this sense of real aggrievement about it, having an endless supply of really hardcore pornography in which women tend to take certain roles. You know, it's a kind of pneumatic and dehumanizing kind of sex. Of course, you would start to think, well, women 
kind of hold the power over who they have sex with, but also at the same time, uh, they're, they're completely undiscerning about who they do it with. Of course you would end up thinking that all women are a bunch of like malevolent sluts. So I think that we don't have that nuanced conversation enough about how all of these things are combining, I think, to a really troubling effect to uh, put turbo boosters under incel culture, that combination of online radicalization, wounded grievance and entitlement, uh, real life isolation, and what they see in pornography. Again, not anti-porn, but just saying we should think about this quite seriously. I mean, it's quite possibly much more widespread than any of us you know, are, are currently aware of. I think that's one of the things so terrifying about it. We're going to go straight to our final story. Britney Spears's father has agreed to step down as the singer's conservator, pledging to participate in an orderly transition to a new legal arrangement. Jamie Spears has controlled the affairs of his daughter, Britney, since 2008, when concerns were raised about her mental health. He was granted a conservatorship over the pop star by a US court, which gave him control over Britney's financial affairs and many aspects of her personal life. Britney Spears has recently spoke about how the, how, how the relationship became abusive, telling a judge that she had been drugged, forced to perform against her will and prevented from having children. According to the BBC, Jamie Spears' response to his daughter's petition was welcomed by her lawyer, Matthew Rosengart, who called it a vindication for his client. We are pleased that Mr. Spears and his lawyer have today conceded in a filing that he must be removed, he said in a statement. Yet he accused Jamie Spears of his own shameful and reprehensible attacks and said he should stop making false accusations and taking cheap shots. He said the singer's father should instead remain silent and step aside immediately. Mr. Rosengart added that an investigation into the actions of those involved in managing her estate throughout the conservatorship would continue. Um, so they're welcoming this, well, this statement that he is willing to hand over the conservatorship, but also commenting on the fact that he is remaining quite unrepentant when it comes to who is in the right and who is in the wrong. It's obviously welcome that Britney Spears' father is now willing to give up his conservatorship over his daughter. But I mean, it's really bizarre and also quite worrying is an understatement that for such a long time, this man had control over his adult daughter in a relationship that she didn't want to be in. I mean, I only discovered about conservatorships through this case. And I think most people are as shocked as I have been. I mean, look, one of the things to bear in mind is that Britney Spears is uniquely legally disempowered by being in a conservatorship. So one, the attorneys being paid for, for the conservators are being paid for out of her money in her estate. She has no option to stop funding those lawyers. Two, initially the attorney she had was not even of her own choosing. So there is a question being raised about a potential conflict of interest, whether an attorney who she didn't pick is able to represent her interests adequately, considering he's got a vested interest in the conservatorship continuing so he can keep representing her and being paid by money from her estate. And three, now she has her own lawyer. She's got her own attorney. Three, she didn't even know that she could petition to bring the conservatorship to an end. Now, so far, that's not been successful, but these are certainly gains. Uh, Jamie Spears having stepped down as his role uh, as a conservator at some point when he deems the time to be right, that is a step forward. But again, she's in a uniquely disempowering position. Um, it's not even clear what the criteria would be 
for her conservatorship to be deemed no longer necessary. Because a conservatorship usually is brought in and imposed when somebody is very, very old or is otherwise incapacitated from taking care of themselves or managing their affairs. Now, with Britney Spears, obviously, she's not very, very old, but also throughout the duration of this conservatorship, she's been working. She's been doing a Vegas residency. She's been asked to tour. Uh, she you know, she's put out music. She's been dancing. She's been performing. These aren't usually things that somebody under a conservatorship would do. So you can see how this quite easily starts to look like a young woman who experienced uh, a mental breakdown, who had some really tough issues to go through. And that was an opportunity to put her in a legal straitjacket, which meant that she can still be a moneymaker and a piggy bank for those around her. And she is legally prohibited from changing that arrangement at all. So yes, this is a step forward, but this is still an incredibly troubling case. And I think it also shows that Sometimes just because somebody on the outside looks like they're very rich doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be very powerful. There are all sorts of legal means uh, to inhibit somebody from exercising that power, particularly if they've experienced mental health issues in some kind of way and they're vulnerable for that reason, particularly also if they're a woman. This is often reported as if it's a bit of a legal quirk. Like As I say, I didn't know that these things existed. I think many people didn't. But since it's become a very high-profile case... We keep hearing that, you know, the judge, you know, rules partly in favor of Britney Spears, partly in favor of her dad. You know, it's still very ambiguous. It seems like it's still difficult for her to get out of this relationship. And I would have assumed, you know, in any civilized society that the moment you realize that a 39 year old woman can have her financial and personal affairs controlled by her father for a decade when she's uncomfortable in that position and she's you know, doing nights at Vegas over and over again, making hundreds of thousands of pounds, but which go to her father. The moment it's, you know, made public that that kind of thing is made possible by US law, there would be an unstoppable clamoring to stop it. And I do find it strange that it, it doesn't seem that there has been this overwhelming clam clamor to say, oh no, this is some weird quirk of our legal system that obviously needs to be changed. This isn't the only law that's on the American statute books, uh, which is really troubling in terms of the amount of power it gives to a parent of somebody who has been deemed unfit for whatever reason. Um, I was listening to a podcast called, it was part of the G series by Radiolab, I think it was named Unfit, about the history of forced sterilizations of intellectually and physically disabled people. Now, this law in many states is still on the statute books, where if you are the parent of an intellectually or physically disabled child, you can go to the court and petition for that child to be forcibly sterilized. That is something that can still happen if they are deemed unfit. Now, this is obviously huge amount of power to uh, exercise. And not only that, the tendency has been to rule in favor of the parent and not in favor of the child who's got the disabilities. So I think this comes within a legal context in which, uh, you know, people who are deemed to be unfit for reasons of disability or mental health issue are denied full access to the rights that any other citizen would have. It's interesting, is it? Because on, on the surface level, you could say, and this is all happening in a country which is supposed to value individual liberty above all else. But when you think about it a bit more, actually, the right to individual liberty has always been, you know, 
fairly vulnerable in the United States because it also means the right for property owners. And this is almost as if, you know, Britney Spears is his property. And the example you're just talking about there, it's as if uh, a child with learning difficulties, even once they become an adult, is the property of the, the parent. And so it's, it's their freedom, which is enshrined in the law. Incredibly grim. Thank you, everyone, for watching tonight's show. Ash Sarkar, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always, speaking to you this evening. It's been great being here. We will be back on Monday at 7 p.m. as ever. Thank you to all of our regular donors. You make all of this possible if you are not already one of those. And you can go to navaramedia.com forward slash support. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.